Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. Please do what you can to conserve energy. Conservation helps the grid. Extreme heat and deadly storms spread across much of the U.S. The rail company says that so far no environmental impact has been detected. Train carrying hazardous chemicals derails into Montana's Yellowstone River. Plus, in a lot of spaces now, in many industries, you compete and you partner. More EV car makers adopt Tesla's fast charging standard. Trust Elon Musk? Why not? All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley has a new plan to make the U.S. energy independent. We would stop controlling where they produce or how much they produce and get the EPA out of the way. We would roll back the green subsidies that have been put in place. Okay, no thanks. This is your Green News Report. All right, Desi Doyen over in the GOP primary for 2024. They are already competing about who can destroy the environment more. Yep. Going to be a fun year. What do you got for us today? Well, first of all, as we go to air, the persistent, brutal heat wave walloping Texas is entering its third week, and forecasters say it is expanding to other states, affecting two-thirds of Americans, generating deadly storms and tornadoes, widespread power outages, and canceled flights from Arizona to New England. What happens in Texas doesn't stay in Texas. <laughs> no. The Texas electric grid has so far mostly held up in the historic heat, but its biggest failures so far this summer have come from fossil-fueled power plants that overheat and break down. Hmm. But large-scale batteries are still quietly keeping the lights on during the unplanned outages. Several deaths have been attributed to the heat, including a postal worker and a grid lineman. Late last week, Republican Governor Greg Abbott signed a law effectively prohibiting local ordinances that mandate water and shade breaks for outdoor workers. How thoughtful. And yes, this is man-made global warming. Numerous studies show that summers have gotten hotter in the U.S. and are becoming deadlier as climate change drives more extreme weather events. Climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann on CNN explained that worse extreme weather events can be avoided if governments cut emissions quickly. The planet will continue to warm up and the oceans will continue to get hotter and hotter until we stop putting carbon pollution into the atmosphere. We're getting perilously close to that danger threshold, but we can still avoid crossing it if we can bring our carbon emissions down dramatically within the next 10 years or so. The most optimistic climatologist on the planet. In other big news, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against the Navajo Nation in a long-running suit over water from the dwindling Colorado River. In a 5-4 to four ruling, the right-wing court majority dismissed the tribe's lawsuit, ruling that even though the federal government confined the tribe to a reservation in the Arizona desert in the 1800s, it is not legally required to take any steps to ensure the tribe has an adequate water supply. How thoughtful. It's a victory for Western states that said a ruling for the tribe would disrupt existing Colorado River agreements. Justice Neil Gorsuch, who often sides with tribes in legal disputes, joined with the court's liberal justices in dissent. Legal experts say the tribe does have potential options in other water rights litigation. In Montana, cleanup is underway on the Yellowstone River after a railroad bridge collapsed over the weekend, sending multiple rail cars tumbling into the water, where they ruptured and spilled hazardous molten sulfur, asphalt, and sodium hydrogen sulfate into the river. Cause of the accident is under investigation. Officials say so far, air and water testing have not shown any threat to the public, but towns have shut down drinking water intakes downstream of the spill. In Oregon, Multnomah County has filed suit against 17 major oil companies alleging that pollution from fossil fuels contributed to the historic 2021 heat wave that killed 69 people in the state. Go get them. Some good news. Electric vehicle startup Rivian announced it will join GM and Ford in adopting Tesla's North American charging standard, which will give its car owners access to Tesla's expansive, fast-charging network in the U.S. and Canada. The move 
puts Tesla on its way to making its standard dominant as EV adoption grows. Prospective buyers get reassurance that charging will be available, and Tesla gets the charging revenue and the ability to access federal infrastructure financing. Finally, great news. The Financial Times reports that for the first time in history, global spending on solar energy production will outpace spending on oil production this year. $370 billion investment in oil, $380 billion investment in solar, with China investing more than the rest of the world combined in solar manufacturing. Well, most of that is good news. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Good day, sunshine. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. There's an obvious reason why these people on the right wrap themselves in a very distorted vision of Christianity. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief. Because they want to make their positions and the positions of the Bible one of the same. Uh, and they want to say that to be a good Christian, you've got to follow their political agenda. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. Historian Kevin M. Cruz is expert at bringing context to some of the events we are witnessing in today's America. Some of what we're seeing is part of a long and too often untold history of Christian nationalism in our country. An author, Princeton professor, and commentator, Kevin will be with us to weigh in on where our politics and public religion are headed. And now there are several grassroots groups that are mobilizing primarily new immigrants, Muslims and Orthodox Ethiopians of late to view the opt-out as gender indoctrination. Tensions are flaring in communities across the country where LGBTQ inclusion in public schools has been weaponized for the benefit of an anti-gay minority. A top priority on the Christian nationalist agenda, the attack on public schools has pitted marginalized groups against one another. This week, I'll talk with Amberine Khan, host of Interfaith Voices on NPR, a former Interfaith Alliance board member, and a Maryland parent facing this conflict in her own school district. Things are changing at State of Belief. We're partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country, for distribution and expansion of this show. We hope the important conversations we produce each week will reach new audiences and contribute even more to the search for strategies and solutions to the very real challenges facing our nation. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platforms or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. We've got so much planned for the weeks and months ahead, and I don't want you to miss it. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com and you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest the author of books like One Nation Under God, How Corporate America Invented Christian America, and most recently co-editor of Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past. Dr. Kevin M. Cruz is a professor of history at Princeton University. He specializes in the political and social history of 20th century America with a particular interest in conflicts over race, rights, and religion. Kevin, welcome back to the State of Belief. So great to be here. Sir, you're a historian, so I'm going to start out with the big history question, which is difficult to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. In 50 years, how are historians going to talk about this time? What are they going to lead with? What are the things that they're going to say, wow, you won't believe what was going on in 2023? 
where to begin. I mean, first of all, I hope there are historians in 50 years and it's not, you know, we're not gathered around a campfire somewhere listening to old father tell stories. Uh, but uh, I, I mean, it's, and it's, it's hard to say in the moment, right, what is going to be really remarkable about this. But I think we can get a sense of that from where we feel like we've departed from the past. And I think one of the most uh, pressing and wide ranging issues that we deal with today is just the widespread plague of misinformation we have. We've always had people lying in American history, right? Um, uh, we've always had people who playing fast and loose with the truth, but they've tended to be on the margins of American history. They haven't held sway for a long time. What's happened in recent years, and there have been a variety of forces we can talk about that have led into this, we've reached a point where truth is kind of up for grabs. Right. It used to be that we would argue over the facts. What fact was more important? What issue was bigger? What was the more pressing priority? Now we're talking past each other because we're simply disagreeing on basic fundamental facts. And it's not really disagreeing. It's that some people are promoting disinformation. I do think there's blame on all sides and the internet, it just makes this rampant yeah. and all of this. But, you know, if we just use election disinformation and like this persistent uh, hammering that the idea that the 2020 election was stolen, which the lead candidate on the Republican side continues to say is verifiably false by people from his own party and appointees, his own judges. And I just think that, you know, I want to get to Twitter because you're so good at Twitter. I'm like, do they teach Princeton professors how to do Twitter? Because you are like, <laughs> you somehow you are great at it. But you just, you know, you, you mentioned in, in one recent tweet, it's not as though this is both sides doing it equally. Like right. there is a, a really serious disinformation campaign coming from the GOP right now, which just has to be acknowledged. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, so that, that book, Myth America, we brought together historians to deal with some of the most pernicious myths uh, that are circulating now. And one of the uh, criticisms we got, a light one, but was, you know, hey, a lot of this stuff you're talking about is on the right. What's going on on the left? Well, there's not as much on the left right now. And, and part of that comes from the fact that when we wrote this book, uh, you know, Trump was was still president. And, you know, uh, with that, uh, that, that, that kind of uh, bully pulpit was uh, amplifying a lot of these lies out into um, uh, uh, the political sphere. But a lot of it predates Trump. Uh, and we really have seen a movement on the right um, uh, to really become divorced from truth, to present what uh, Kellyanne Conway called alternative facts. Right. Uh, I remember that moment. That moment yeah. actually was the most chilling moment. We have alternative facts. I remember it was like just the ministry of truth come to life, right? It was just, you know, uh, and 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 we've seen this in in increments, right? You know, remember in the in, in the uh, uh, the Bush administration, uh, we saw some of the trends start to begin here. So this did predate Trump. We saw the Bush administration was constantly challenging scientific experts on climate change, on issues like that, right? Uh, on the war in Iraq, there was that famous interview with Ron Susskind, where I, I think it was Carl Rove. I don't know if he's ever been identified, who says, "Look, you reporters live out in the reality-based community." What we're doing is creating our own reality, right? Right, right? And and that's kind of a remarkable departure point. And and here we are two decades later, and we can see how far down a, a dangerous path that kind of thinking has taken us. Yeah. I mean, and, it, you know, it has real implications right now because uh, I, I know that you know um, the writer Jeff Charlotte, whose new book, yeah. Undertow, I think, you know, we had him on the show and I I consider it one of the most important books out there right now. Just the the portrayal of um, you know he he you know he goes in he goes in like he's there you know and yeah. these you know going into these kind of militia churches with guns on the altar and they're preaching things that are verifiably false like Hillary Clinton is dead and Trump is president mm -hmm. and and people are like you know kind of nodding their head and saying absolutely absolutely or oh I hadn't thought of it that way before and this is I think what you're talking about is if we can't if we're so far apart on verifiable facts like how do we build a future together I, I think that you know that wasn't exactly what I expected you to come back with as far as like the future historians. Um, but I think that that's, that, that does feel like it affects all areas of life. And it's interesting, you know, you started with, if there still are historians, yeah. I think like this idea of misinformation, disinformation, it, it is an attack on 
places like universities, mm-hmm. places like um, any any institution of learning, at libraries, anywhere yeah. where there is where there's information, and I you know I, I do think you know the the question of whether or not we'll have those kind of civic institutions or who will control them to what end is really inst- you know really wild um, right yeah. now, and it's I think I think you know. Basically, and I'll, and then I you know I'll pitch it back to you. But one of, some of the things that for me has been so disturbing is that things I kind of took for granted, I now no longer take for granted. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and, and I think that that just that that feels terrifying for me. Um, and history is also about like the story we tell about ourselves, and yeah. it's the story. And so you know, I want to talk a little bit about the the book Myth America. And, uh, you know, we had uh, your colleague, uh, Julian, on the show earlier when it first came out, and it was so great to talk to him. But I did, I did, you know, have a critique, and I'm going to level at you, too, is that there wasn't the myth around Christian America. I know, I know. And, 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 and I, you know, I'll, it, I, you know, there was so much great stuff. This is a book yeah. that everyone should read because it actually is, like, it's, it goes back to this point. How do we understand what's true and what has been this, 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 the lies wrapped around a nugget where, um, but, but you, you're like the expert. I mean, one of the many, you know, this is really a a place where you shine is what is our true history? And I would love for you, you know, for the benefit of our listeners um, who may not have had a chance um, to read your Substack, we're going to get to that, but you have an amazing Substack called campaign trail which like everyone like it's amazing you can subscribe to this and get smarter uh so i <laughs> it's really amazing um but you wrote something about hugo black and yeah. his decision around school prayer can you talk about that and like yeah. this broader question of where religion fits in the history of america especially this idea of a christian nation and and the you know why why Hugo Black felt it was so important to argue against prayer in yeah. school. So as I as I talk about in, in One Nation Under God and Death, which is what that, uh, that post was drawn from, uh, there's a movement in the 1950s um, in which America suddenly embraces a level of public religiosity that it hadn't had before. Uh, and uh, there had been prayers in various schools, largely in, you know, religiously homogenous communities where it wouldn't cause a problem uh, throughout American history. It really becomes a a political debate uh, in the 1950s when you get things like the New York uh, State Board of Regents who control education in the state crafting an official prayer, which they encourage to be uh, uh, read aloud in schools. And uh, it's it's a recommendation, but a lot of schools uh, embrace it. And one of the ones that, that did uh, was in Herrick's uh, New York and Long Island. And when they do, it immediately causes uh, a, a real stir in this town, um, uh, largely as it gets seen as a way for uh, kind of the Catholic old residents of the town to push back against newer Jewish arrivals. Uh, it really does kind of bleed into the fault lines there. Uh, and so the case of Engel v. Vital, uh, Engel was one of the parents, a Jewish parent uh, in this town. Vital was the, uh, Vitali was the, um, a school superintendent, reaches the Supreme Court. And the, and the case here, it's often misconstrued, it certainly was the press when it came out, that the Supreme Court had banned all prayer from schools. What it's really about is they banned the state from writing and implementing prayers in the school. And so if you understand that really crucial detail about the school prayer case, it takes on a really different uh, 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 set of dimensions. And Hugo Black recognized this. Uh, and Hugo Black was somebody who, uh, he came from Alabama. Uh, he had been a Sunday school teacher for adults uh, at his Baptist church and a deacon. Uh, and uh, in keeping with what was at the time the Baptist tradition in the mid-20th century, he was at the forefront of a movement calling for the separation of church and state. Um, that line, as you well know, comes from a letter Thomas Jefferson wrote uh, to uh, some uh, Danbury, Connecticut Baptists. Uh, saying there was a wall of separation between church and state in America. That's what the First Amendment had set up. And as Black knew, Jefferson was absolutely right on that. Again, these these debates about whether or not America is a Christian nation. Well, the originalists like to go back to the text a lot, but they don't on this point, right? And it's crystal clear. 
crystal, crystal, you know, that's the thing. It, it, you know, when, and you've been so helpful this on this, like the, the treaty of Tripoli, the, um, I mean, the, the first amendment, you know, the treaty of Tripoli, by the way, if people don't know it, it's a very fascinating treaty that was in like the, you know, 1796 that basically starts with the, with the language as, as the United States is in no way founded on the Christian religion, yeah. You know, we have yeah. no reason to be at war with Muslim nations. And and That's it's right. just like, right. you know, the, letters like that, like the, the Washington letter to the Hebrew congregation, all of these yeah. are like, there is no Christian nation at the founding. The Treaty of Tripoli, launched by George Washington, signed by John Adams, ratified by a Senate that was still about half full with people who'd, uh, who'd uh, helped uh, draft the Constitution, speaks pretty clearly to the founders' intent. Right. And again, just go to the Constitution itself, right? All the I mean, references to religion in the Constitution are ones that purposely keep religion at arm's length, right? You know, one of the things that just, you know, with the Hugo Black is I, that you, you know, is so moving is that he really felt he was protecting religion. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but he Absolutely. was painted as someone who was attacking religion. And that's exactly what he lays out. And, and this, uh, I think, why as an historian, I really like that ruling so much because he works like an historian. He 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 has his clerks running to the Library of Congress, getting all sorts of text. It's a length by the sixth draft. It's a lengthy opinion about kind of the long history of religious oppression in the Anglo-American world from the 16th to the 18th centuries. And he says, "Look, this is what the founders were escaping. They right. knew that when religion and the state intermingled, religion suffered, right? And so, in order to have all religious liberty flourish, we've got to keep the state out of this business. You named it the campaign trial. Uh, do you do you imagine this uh, following the upcoming campaign and yeah. Yeah. offering insights and, and trying to, you know, truth tell and fact check and all those good things? Yeah, exactly. And, and again, I see this picking up what I have done in Twitter and my Twitter account started in the spring of 2015, right before that presidential cycle started. And uh, I sunk my teeth into that. We're at the same moment in the cycle now. Uh, and I really do see it uh, uh, being something that brings in politics. I, I did campaign trails as a, as a title, just to kind of the uh, the after effects of, of civil rights campaigns and political tr- campaigns. But I really do want to be um, providing historical context uh, for the present as well as we go. Yeah. I mean, what are, what is your, th- I mean, give us a, give us your perspective on the upcoming campaign as you see it now. And, um, you know, Peter Mansour, do you, do you know him? He's, 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 he's a fabulous guy. And he went out on Twitter saying, saying Trump will never be the nominee by the time it gets to the first, um, you know, and I was, you know, so I've actually taken that and brought it into family situations. Do you guys think he's going to make it with all the indictments? I'm curious, where do you see, both in the Democratic side and the and the Republican side, where do you see the state of play right now? Yeah, well, the Democratic side is is I think pretty straightforward. Um, uh, barring um, something catastrophic, uh, Joe Biden is going to walk to the nomination. Uh, the Robert F. Kennedy challenge is uh, having its moment now, but it's going to dissipate. I think as more people realize he's more of a name and some of the actual positions he's had and the people who are associated with him, I think Democrats are going to kind of run screaming from that. Uh, he's not going to get much of a traction. Incumbent presidents never debate their challengers, so he's not going to have that that way in. I respect Peter a lot, but I'm not sure I agree with that uh, sentiment that that Trump won't be the nominee. Uh, and, and I say so because I, uh, what we've seen is with every indictment so far, his support has gone up. Um, and, and, and again, this is that thing we talked about at the start, the kind of alternative reality that some people are in. His base sees these 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 charges as irrelevant. They they both sides it. They've invented some bizarre conspiracy about Joe Biden that they're trying to push. Um, uh, they see any attack on him as a sign he must be doing something right. They are doubling down on him. And yeah. who's the alternative? I mean, DeSantis is shown he's not really ready for prime time, and his numbers are are fading. Uh, and he's tried to be a kind of a, you know a clone of Trump. Uh, the rest of the field is getting more crowded every day. And as a result, I think it's going to look just like 2016, where the not Trump vote is divided between about 12 different candidates and no one gets any traction and we all cancel each other out. 
Yeah. So I, mean, uh, Chris, I think Chris Christie is trying to like actually, he's trying, yeah. you know, like, you know, and, and, and probably he's helped by the calendar and the fact that New Hampshire is pretty friendly uh, to him. Yeah. So th- there might be a moment. Um, but my guess is that Trump's going to refuse to debate anybody. Um, he, you know, I, I, yeah, he's, he's, he's talked about refusing the main debate to, against Biden. Yeah. I mean, so he might as well just, right. you know, yeah. Right. And again, yeah. he's the front runner. He, he has, you know, unless they all, you know, uh, show up at his rallies and in, in chicken suits like they used to with uh, George H.W. Bush. Uh, they're not going to shame him into doing anything. Right. right. So uh, no, that's right. Probably, that's right. probably blow him off. Yeah. The, you know, the, uh, I want to spend just a minute on DeSantis because I, I just feel as far as Christian nationalism go, he's like the embodiment of it. He yeah. is using Christian rhetoric. I mean, you know, to, to use Ephesians, uh, talk about the armor of God and then replace the devil with the left. I mean, it's, it's, it's very pernicious and it creates this zero sum game of spiritual warfare for his followers against anyone who opposes him. There is no opportunity for compromise. There is no opportunity for moving together to try to understand one another. If, if you, if you slate people as the devil, then Mm -hmm. it's pretty clear you can't compromise with the devil. And so, um, and then you see, I don't know if you saw this crazy video from Rick Scott saying socialists not welcome in yeah. Florida or communist socialist. I, I honestly didn't watch the whole thing, but that was his headline. You know, he put out the tweet and I thought that is one of the most fascistic things ever. I mean, I'm not a socialist or a communist in my own leanings, but the idea that America is actually great because we have a democracy and we right. and we we decide together what we're doing. And the yeah. idea that people who hold particular affiliations are not welcome in one of the states, it and and that you're divide. I don't know. It just felt really. It, it felt chilling to me. Um, and we've already, you know, we have we 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 realize that the the policies there are are really adverse. And you know, speaking of higher education, like what can you say in higher education is under attack in Florida. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole lot there to talk about. First of all, the Rick Scott thing, to say communists and socialists aren't welcome in your state when there are literally Nazis protesting outside Disney World. 100%. And and that's the target you pick is really remarkable. But also Rick Scott talking about, he wasn't just socialism and communism, he's talking about big government too. Rick Scott, who pulled off one of the biggest, what, Medicaid frauds of all time, apparently, um, uh, to complain about that in a state where there are so many people on Social Security, Medicaid, SNAP benefits, a state that Social Security, bailouts for, for hurricanes, right? To complain about big government is just pathetic. Um, the Christian nationalism stuff, uh, I think you've got it exactly right. I mean, there's an obvious reason why uh, um, uh, these people on the right wrap themselves uh, in a very distorted vision of Christianity. Uh, because they want to make um, uh, their positions and 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 the positions of the Bible one of the same, uh, and they want to say that to be a good Christian, you've got to follow their political agenda. Yeah, there, I would say Bible. it's not the Bible. It's like you know, I don't even like yeah. you know. I I had I had uh, Bishop Barber on the show a couple of weeks ago. He's like, there's two hundred verses, two thousand verses about the poor in the Bible. Yeah. If you cut all those out, the Bible falls apart. Right. You know, uh, you know, and, and and so they're not like they, they they are not talking about the Bible. They are not yeah. talking. I mean, they're they're just like they're using this rhetoric, and and it ah, uh, there's so much to cringe at. But did you hear him like talk about? I would have really liked to have been a disciple. Did you see that? Oh my Where, god! Yes. Uh, I, I yeah. mean, that was so funny. It was like comment. It was. It looked like Saturday Night Live. You know, those guys look like they were really interesting. I would have liked to have been a disciple. Oh yeah. Which which martyr would you like to have been? You know, I mean, like it. It, it is. It, it was just. It, it's so. It feels so fake and and uh, anyway yeah but 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 also like don't call yourself a disciple of jesus like don't say i that's who i really feel i am you know i mean it's it's again it's using christianity for power for a power i mean i think that's the perfect example he's he's talking about he wants the status of a disciple he's not really listening the way in which the disciples actually did to what christ said i mean there wasn't a whole lot correct me if i'm wrong uh, I don't believe Jesus spent a lot of time denouncing drag queens 
uh, <laughs> talking about woke indoctrination, right? Actually, you know, things- it's it's kind of perfect because a lot of, Jesus spent a lot of time telling his disciples they were missing the point. Right. Like there's a lot of that in the Bible of, of Jesus saying, you're missing the point. You're That's talking right. about the things that don't matter. You have no idea of what's happening. It's a, you know, they are almost a foil for like what not to be. Right. Uh, right. So, so he's, he, maybe he's got that part, right? So I, I like to ask people um, on this show to end with the question, what gives you hope right now? What gives me hope? Um, what gives me hope are that, People are realizing uh, that kind of uh, message that I just I just said. I'm not the first one to say it, uh, but uh, I think one of the things, the silver lining of of our time, is that after decades of people kind of thinking that democracy ran on autopilot, uh, uh, they thought it was a spectator sport. Uh, they're realizing that it's not, uh, and the level of engagement we've seen uh, in recent years, especially from younger people, mm. is really remarkable and really encouraging. Uh, and uh, I sound like Whitney Houston. I believe children are the future, but uh, I do. I, I think they're they're giving us some some signs of hope here, and so uh, I'm really encouraged by the seeds of what seems to be an important change. As an historian, I'm always resistant to judge things as they're shifting because uh, I, I know they can change uh, very quickly. But I do think we're seeing the growth uh, of a really important new movement in this country on a variety of issues: on climate change, on gun control, on 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 uh, economic inequality, on race, gender, sexuality. There's a whole lot of issues on on which uh, the ground is changing beneath our feet, and we're seeing a lot of resistance and a lot of pushback and a lot of efforts to roll the clock back. I think because people who are resistant to these changes realize that there's a real change coming. Uh, and, and that resistance should just be a sign of, of progress happening and uh, a reminder that we all need to double down. Mm. When people ask me what gave me hope when I was at Princeton, I was like, I'm surrounded by these young people who are asking the right questions. Yeah. They are engaged. They are, you know, completely up for the conversation and up for democracy. And I just yeah. I feel like if we can make sure that we are fueling as much power, as much energy, and as much openness to their input as possible. It will do well for us. Absolutely. Dr. Kevin M. Cruz is professor of history at Princeton University. Find his campaign trails insights at Kevin M. Cruz. I'm going to spell it K-E-V-I-N-M-K-R-U-S-E dot substack dot com. Kevin, thank you for being with us on State of Belief. It's an absolute pleasure. Great seeing you. Coming up next, Ambreen Khan. She's witnessing firsthand how Muslim parents are getting drawn into an anti-gay campaign in Montgomery County, Maryland public schools and causing divisions in the community. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. And please make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation Podcast. Please go to stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to the State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. almost like an obstacle course trying to get an abortion for some folks and it's really really fraught 911 what's your emergency america's healthcare system is broken and people are dying welcome to code whack where we shine a light on america's callous healthcare system how it hurts us and what we can do about it i'm your host brenda gazar This time on Code Whack. It's been one year now since the landmark Roe v. Wade Supreme Court ruling, which would have marked its 50th anniversary this year, was overturned in the Dobbs v. Jackson Supreme Court decision. What has that meant for abortion access in America? To find out, we spoke to Kat Duffy, a policy analyst in the National Health Law Program's Washington, D.C. office. She holds a doctorate and works on reproductive and sexual health care access and services with a special focus on abortion coverage and access. Just in general, Dobbs has really created 
created a culture of like mass uncertainty because the the landscape is constantly shifting in terms of whether or not bans are in effect in certain states or not. People have had to cancel their appointments as a result of that because one day a ban will be blocked by litigation and the next day, which is the day of their appointment, it'll go back into effect. And oftentimes people are have to travel long, long distances, which can be extremely expensive depending on how far they have to travel, whether or not they have to take time off work, if they have paid time off work. And so it's definitely increased the toll that it takes on people. Get the full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Wack wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. There is an indictment against former President Donald J. Trump, and the Trump indictment has been released. The indictment outlining federal charges against the former president for alleged mishandling of classified documents that have been unsealed, revealing he's been charged with 37 felony counts. Now, I want to do a side for a second, because I already know what my colleagues on the right are going to say. They're going to say that Merrick Garland and the DOJ are politically motivated, that they're Biden's DOJ. But let's remember, it wasn't until the former president left office, until the records were found, and until he refused to hand them over that this occurred. And I know those on the right are going to say it's politically motivated, but no, it isn't because it takes time to get to this point. You know, you don't just like, you know, you know, look at a cliff note version of, you know, potential felony counts, 37 of them, folks. Now, I'm sorry, I know some of you, probably not many of you watching love Donald Trump, but I know some of you do. And, you know, you're not going to agree with me on this. But those of you who could take him or leave him and those of you who loathe him, um, I think would agree with me that you cannot trust him with this kind of information, especially after leaving office. One, it's illegal for him to have it and knowingly take it and knowingly try to cover up that he took it. What was the purpose in him taking it? I mean, this is a man that continually perpetuates a lie that he actually won the election in 2020, which he did not. We saw what happened with his cult-like followers on January 6th. And I say cult-like followers because not everyone who is a MAGA is, is a cult-like follower. There are people out there who are just Republicans or just love Donald Trump, but they wouldn't follow him like lambs to the slaughter. And I mean, what would this guy do? We don't know. We don't know what he would do to elevate himself, to try and create upheaval, to get back into the Oval Office, or to make money, or you know, e all of the above, with somebody like Putin, with somebody like the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, with somebody like Kim Jong Un of North Korea. We just don't know. So this information is dangerous for somebody to have. But I'm sorry. You know, there are those of you out there who don't want to vote. You voted for him once, maybe voted for him twice. You're not going to do it a third time, either because you didn't do the second time or you don't want it happen the first time around. Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to the State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. Joining me now is Ambreen Khan, host of Interfaith Voices program at NPR, a former Interfaith Alliance board member and a Maryland parent facing a conflict in her own school district. Ambreen, welcome to the State of Belief. Thank you, Paul. It is a pleasure to be here. You have been a leader in interfaith work. You have an amazing show, Interfaith Voices. Everyone should check it out. It is so beautiful, deeply spiritual, relevant, and important. And so this is kind of your bread and butter. You do this, and now it's kind of happening to you. You're part of a conflict. In broad strokes, what's happening in Montgomery County? 
So, um, Paul, what's happening in Montgomery County, which is right outside the nation's capital, um, we're a really large and diverse school district. And like many places, after 2020, school officials began questioning and examining the curriculum. Are we as inclusive as we can be? And part of that process was looking at the various books that are part of the English language arts program. So in January of 2023, this year, there were six books that included LGBTQ characters in the stories, like Poppy Pride, a book that's for kindergarten. And those six books were approved. Well, what started happening is Moms for Liberty in Montgomery County was raising concerns. They were flagging this as inappropriate. They were calling it sex ed. They were calling it gender indoctrination. And they wanted the books removed. Then they wanted to encourage families to opt out opt out of listening or reading and classroom discussion. So here's what happened. Schools were starting to hear from parents that were concerned about these books. And to kind of address the issue on a case-by-case basis, teachers and principals were letting kids be pulled out of the class during an English conversation about a book. When the school board discovered that this was happening and the protests were growing, it realized that, wait a minute, You can't opt out of math or biology. You can't opt out of English class. You can't opt out of language arts. By law in Maryland, the only thing you can opt out of that families can opt their children out of instruction is sex ed and family life curriculum, which is by state law. So the school system said, wait a minute, we're clarifying the policy. You can't opt out of English language arts. You can't opt out of circle reading time. And that's when Moms for Liberty started organizing and reaching out and engaging with other groups. And they engaged with the Council of American Islamic Relations, which is a national organization. Their Maryland organizer started working and trying to find support. And now there are several grassroots groups that are mobilizing primarily new immigrants, Muslims and Orthodox Ethiopians of late to view the opt out as gender indoctrination, which is what they're saying. There have been now three large protests, each one growing outside the school board system. I've been attending those meetings to try to understand what's happening and interviewing people. And there's a lot happening here, but part of what this story is about is an absolute um, misinformation campaign about what is being taught in the schools. And, and it is, it, it's also a story of, you know, how people are in some ways leaning into and tapping into fear and also using religion in a way that divides a community, that divides a school system, I just wonder, like, what does it mean to opt out of education? What does it mean to opt out of a conversation about difference? You said that people can opt out of, like, what is essentially sex ed. These are not sex ed books. These are about characters who are different. And I think that, you know, what what feels to me the most kind of sad about this is that we're seeing now a kind of bifurcation that we've really tried hard not to have, which is... What exactly what happened to your son? Oh, are all Muslims anti-gay or, you know, uh, and I think that this is, you know, we're it's just it's another sign of like the fraying of our cultural contract. I mean, how do you understand this as an interfaith activist? You know, I think that it's interesting that you, you know, the, the, the interfaith kind of dimension of this. Montgomery County is a really unique place. Um, the county as a, as, as, as a municipality in the school system is home to not just two or three cultures. We're home to people who come from 158 countries and who speak over 100 languages. And the religious diversity is there as well. We have so many different cultures in 
in, engaged in our communities. And I, you know, Paul, I was a PTA president for several wow. years in my local elementary school um, because it was really important to me to be involved in the schools. And what I experienced when I my kids were in elementary school was that when you bring people from different experiences who have different contexts for how you engage with schools, you have to have a space for people to understand the system, to learn the process, and to talk to each other. You know, people come from different countries of context where ideas are different, where acceptance looks different. I mean, I feel like in Montgomery County, what has made us such an amazing community and why I have called it home for over two decades is because the ethos has been one of listening and learning and being okay, being a little uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, in addition to my national work with the interfaith uh, community, I also sit on the board of the interfaith conference of metropolitan Washington, which is more locally focused. And, you know, Every experience I've had since I was a little kid, I'm an immigrant, I'm a Muslim, I, you know, I, I was an adult, I was a parent at 9-11. I, I fully appreciate what interlocking systems of oppression looks like. You cannot understate that using religion as a way to challenge inclusive education is not going to have a backlash mm. and open up, let's just say it, Paul, open up negative assumptions people still have about Muslims. Well, I mean, that's what your your, your own son experienced. You know, I, I think that's the really interesting, you know, and kind of terrible, you know, that all of a sudden your son had to answer for you know, the actions of others. And, you know, that's really, you know, that this idea of dividing people and it, it is very harmful. This idea of dividing people and and uh, and it, it is very harmful. And and I, I just it's, it makes me fear for for the LGBTQ community. It makes me fear for the Muslim community. It makes me sad for America that that everyone cannot and also the idea that there are not LGBTQ Muslims well, is so also something that we need to say. Full disclosure, Paul. So I'm a journalist. I'm, a, I'm the host of a show. I interview people. I introduce the audiences that uh, trust me into their homes every week to ideas and people who I think enlighten and help us understand what's happening in the world. And in full disclosure, which I have, am very adamant about doing, I when my son said something to me after I came back from that first board meeting that I heard what was being said, he asked me to testify. And I said, honey, I'm a little concerned. I, I'm, it, it's not really, as a journalist, I shouldn't be stepping into that role. And he looked at me and he said, mom, no one else is standing up and saying anything. And so, mm. Paul, I testified. I sat down. And it was on June 6th when I went. I was, it was heartbreaking for me heartbreaking. Mm. I had friends literally on both sides of the protest and I walked in, my heart was pounding. I have testified at events where I've testified at school board meetings, I've testified at libraries. That was one of the hardest days for me because I was so aware of the fear, of the anger, and of the pain people were feeling on both sides. And mm. I think that that pain stems from misinformation that is not being spread by everyone on the street, okay? And that is the responsibility of leaders. And there is a political agenda here, which we're not talking about, Paul. This is about power. There mm. has been a growing frustration by a handful of leaders in Montgomery County who represent certain interests, frustration that they have not been able to uh, elect folks that they want. And there was a, a meeting on Saturday this past weekend at a mosque, and it was said openly. Uh, we, they, we started with transgender bathroom policies that we were upset about, but what everyone got really, what we were really able to organize around was this opt-out. And the opt-out message has been distorted. And it's it's for a political purpose. And what's so sad to me is that the people I met yesterday, I interviewed 25 people, uh, Ethiopian Orthodox, um, new immigrants from around the world who are Muslim. Uh, I interviewed so many folks and kids. And when I said, why, have you read the books? No. What, what do you think the books are? Pornography. 
Mm. What do you think will happen? Well, there's teaching sex to three-year-olds and to four-year-olds. And I, I didn't argue. I was trying to listen. And what I heard and I saw in the eyes of mothers and fathers was this impassioned sense of a need to defend their children and to protect their culture. And I think that that genuine pain that they're feeling yeah. is something we cannot ignore. And we can't just demonize. I I caution people who I talked to yesterday saying, oh my gosh, there are just a bunch of haters out there. And I said, hold on. I think we have to listen to what they're saying. And if somebody is not informed and being actively misled and told that this is sex ed as opposed to books in a curriculum that are part of English class, they're not talking about the things that people think. Right. There's fear yeah. that's that's generated all this that before we before we dive deep into our camps and tribes and open up the stereotypes and tropes that we have, let's pause and listen. And there was a portion yesterday at testimony that was heartbreaking and I saw it happen. And, and, and this woman, it turns out she, she um, I knew her, I didn't realize, I hadn't seen her in 15 years. I didn't know this, her daughter is transgender. And she shared the story of her daughter being bullied, harassed, chased home, and a friend of her daughter's, who's also um, a, a trans uh, young woman, was beaten up. And it was videotaped and then put on social media. And as Jocelyn is sharing the story, she's sitting next to two people who are going to testify and tell very different stories from the other side. And I could see the tears in the eyes of the woman who was going, the Ethiopian mom who was going to testify next. And she took a breath and then she gave her testimony. And then they came outside and I was standing there. And the mom came out, the Ethiopian mom came out and she walked up to, to Jocelyn and she said, with tears in her eyes, I am so sorry for what happened to your daughter. And in that moment, Paul, I again go back to what I learned from the early days of sitting down with someone who doesn't know me and who I don't know and just listening to each other and putting down our, our, our assumptions for five seconds. And we see each other's humanity. And so what is what my takeaway of what's happening in Montgomery County is the political objective of trying to get power. There's already discussion about trying to unseat and recall and run candidates. There's discussion. There were lots of members of the Maryland GOP there trying to sign up voters. I mean, this is part of a political strategy. Right. It is also, Paul, part of a legal strategy because the Beckett Fund is involved right. and is suing the school system. And... At the end of the day, what I have to say is that Montgomery County is home to a lot of communities, and this is going to challenge us, all of us, to take a breath and to find a way to sit down and unpack the emotions that we have and talk to each other and see each other's humanity. Oh, my God. I That was so helpful. Do you feel like maybe that's, you know, there is there space for that? Is there a way that we can we can do that work? Or, you know, I, I, I just I, I want to end with like the way I always end with um, with guests is like, what gives you hope? Like, is that something that you have hope that can happen? Absolutely. I, I wasn't just hoping for it halfway through the rally as I was outside talking to people. I started asking them. If I invite you to come sit with me at the local library with, with five people and read the books, will you do it? And this mom said, no, absolutely not. I said, but just no cameras, no microphones, and you can have whatever opinion you want to have, but will you sit down with me and just read the book so we can talk about it? And I asked that question over and over again, Paul, and so many people said yes. Uh -huh. And I will tell you that that gives me hope that yeah. when we share our experiences, when we acknowledge the other person's humanity, we build a bridge and it is very difficult to demonize and call each other names. This is so helpful. Paul, before you joined the Interfaith Alliance, when I was when I was a part of the of the organization, um, there was a woman, uh, Donna Redwing who I had the opportunity to work with um, when she was 
providing support and guidance as the Interfaith Alliance was trying to facilitate conversations within the mainline denominations. She was the one who really taught me when I was very young, like the importance of acknowledging the power that fear can have in shifting our ability to listen. And she used to facilitate these quiet conversations. And I have been thinking so much about her and Welton and others, because honestly, Paul, I spent 15 years of my life watching and raising concerns about the way the Christian religious right was manipulating and weaponizing religion in the American context. And now I see it happening in my own tradition. And so it, it gives me hope that we have in our community, in our interfaith, multi-faith community, people who know and have experienced and worked to practice the bravery, as Bishop Buddy likes to say, of listening. I'm so sad that I never got to do this show with Welton. Um, the, day, the day before he passed, I was, it was the first Montgomery County school board meeting I had attended for this issue. I, I, I'm a frequent flyer at these board meetings. And when I got there and I heard what was being said and I started to see what was unfolding, I knew I'd seen this before. And the feeling I'd had was one that I had heard from him described to me when I first met him in 1998, when he came on board and I, remember the pain he described of feeling and watching and witnessing the weaponizing of a tradition to drive a political agenda and the divides it was creating within his faith community. And I was, you know, this is 1998. And I remember listening to Welton tell me about this. And then we had to hop in my car and we drove to Lancaster, Pennsylvania for him to meet one of the early interfaith alliances. And he was speaking there. And so we had this road trip to get to know each other. We both had roots in Tennessee. And I just remember him talking about what he felt in the 1970s, you know, as all of these events were unfolding and all of these forces that were seeking to kind of mobilize inside the, the seminary. And it just, I have to tell you guys, I was feeling and thinking about Welton when I left the school board meeting after listening to the different folks who were uh, raising concerns and invoking faith. And it just, I was so, I had made, resolved in my mind, I'm going to call him tonight and talk to him. And then the next day I saw that and I was just, I was so sad and so um, aware of the loss that we're all kind of uh, experiencing when we lose the elders in our respective faith communities who have witnessed and watched and experienced history that still holds lessons for us today. So I just wanted to share that with you. Thank you. Ambreen Khan is the host of Interfaith Voices on NPR. Ambreen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I hope to be back. And that's all the time we have for this week's The State of Belief. We're partnering with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country for distribution and expansion of our show. We hope that the important conversations we produce each week will reach new audiences and contribute even more to the search for strategies and solutions to the very real challenges facing our nation please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping the state of belief on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. 
And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are being heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.